basically, look, this is where we see your heart rate and we see that you, you know, you're producing this much lactic acid, this many millimole right. uh, at this heart rate. And we think these two things go together. So yeah, we think this is the right training zone for you. Right. Um, and then oh, so basically like, okay, so that makes sense. So you basically just some understanding and yeah. interpreting here, essentially plot out your heart rate to lactic acid production. Exactly. And then find the right exact zones of yep. where you should be and when you're training. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Hey friends, Jeffrey Wu here, and welcome to this week's episode of the HVMN podcast. Rowing as a sport is incredibly nuanced. While not perhaps as popular as other sports, the technique, teamwork, training, nutrition, the combination of aerobic and anaerobic exertion is incredibly high level. I've gotten some appreciation of the sport working with my colleague, Dr. Brianna Steps, who is a rower for the British national team. And that's why I was especially excited to talk to Mike DeSanto to really dive into the life of an active Olympian rower and learn even more about the sport. Mike has a unique insight here. He represented America at the 2016 Olympics in Rio, balances a full-time job with a full-time athletic career, and was actually an early user of our ketone ester when it was being developed at the University of Oxford. We touch upon the various coaching philosophies Mike has trained under and how he structures his training now, how he overcame his non-traditional rowing physique and used it to his advantage, and what's it like to compete in the Olympics? Spoiler alert, Olympic Village is not as much of a frat party as mass media might have you believe. Let's jump in. If you're tuning in via audio, remember to hit that subscribe button for weekly episodes. For folks watching on YouTube, please subscribe as well. But also hit that bell next to the red subscribe button. YouTube isn't perfect and doesn't always notify you when we post a video. So click on that bell to not miss out. Without further ado, let's get right into it. Mike, welcome to the new office and new studio. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so last time we spoke was when you visited our office a few months ago. Yeah. And I now I know that you're four weeks out from the World Championships. Yeah. How's preparation? How's training? How's that going? Yeah, it's going great. Been training a lot. You know, we haven't had much in the way of time off recently, yeah. but uh, I think things are been really positive and looking forward to the last couple of weeks yeah. before racing begins. Yeah, so how does that typically look like? So <clears throat> obviously rowing, probably one of the most intense athletic events, but I would say it was probably less well known in terms of how people train for it, how people prepare for it. Yeah. So what does like a training block look like for you guys? I mean, are you guys on the lake, in the ocean, rowing every single day? Do you cycle your training? What does it typically look like? Yeah. Well, I think the main differences probably revolve around like coaching philosophies or styles. So my current coach, who's been the Olympic coach, I think in 2000, 2004, 2008, 2012. Okay. I think he's a big believer in intensity. Okay. So what that entails for the athletes is we're still rowing 10 or 11 times a week. We're out in the water, but uh, there's quite a bit of side-by-side -side work. So or competitive pieces. So you're always trying to beat the guys next to you. And right. you're very- Are these two-man crews? Uh, any, you, anywhere from two-man to four-man to eight-man. Okay. And you're very aware that pieces count. Okay. And that he's recording times and results. And is I really- it, There's an expectation that like, this is the ranking for the world championship squad, the Olympic squad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's good. It brings out the best guys show up to every practice and you're ready to go. And yeah. I've been in other programs where it's much more endurance-based. So you're out there and maybe you have a heart rate monitor in your watch and you're told to be in this heart rate or training zone for 80 or 90 minutes. 
So I think there's pros and cons to each one. It involves a lot of time out rowing and in Oakland where we're training, we're training out in the estuary. There's an added element of, you know, there's boats out there. Occasionally you'll see a sea lion. (laughs) It's just like the water moves underneath you, which is rare because when we go over to the world championships in Bulgaria, it'll be a perfectly flat 2000 meter course, still water. You know, there's all these specifications of what what courses can and can't hold them. So, so does that make your training harder than the actual match? I think it will. Okay. Yeah, because, the you know, there's a lot more variables where we train now right. than when we get over there. So I think that's something that we'll notice. And maybe it's only a, a subtle difference, but I think right. it is important. Usually you want to train the same exact specifications as the match. Like, do you think you'll get an advantage because you're training in a harder water? Or is that going to kind of like trip you out a little bit when you go over to Bulgaria and it's like, okay, a perfectly flat still lake now? Yeah, I think it's actually maybe a little more tricky and challenging to train where we currently right. do. But we're very lucky. We get an opportunity to go and train on a reservoir out in Orinda. Okay. That is flat water. So you okay. can get accurate times and to test different lineups and combinations within the boat. Okay, so you get to train yeah. on a harder surface where there's more variables and you also get to train. Exactly. exactly. So we get the okay. best of both Okay, get both. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> So obviously if you're doing 10, 11 sessions a week, you're doing like twice a day. Yeah. So what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? So it sounds like you have a training block going into the competition in four yeah. weeks, but I guess on a weekly basis or a daily basis, yeah. like morning. Well, yeah, walk us through, like what did you do like yesterday or today? Yeah, so this current coach is a very big proponent and advocate of all the guys having jobs and not okay. just a little job here or there, but full-time nine to five jobs. Okay. So most of the athletes... Uh, myself included, have work and we work anywhere from six to nine hours a day. So he's really tailored our training program all year to allow us to go to work from nine to five and then get back and train. But I'd say a typical week will start on uh, Monday. I'll wake up probably around six, kind of get my stuff together. I live two minutes from the boathouse where we train over in Oakland. So just a brief commute. I'll get there. I'll do some dynamic stretching. And then we'll get out in the water around 640 or so. And you're doing this fasted, no breakfast? I do all of this fasted, yeah. Huh. For a few reasons. I know in an endurance sport like rowing, I think it helps. And you, you probably have know the science behind it a bit better. But some of the channels for teaching your body how to tap into its fat stores. Right. You're which, improving your fat metabolism, fat yeah. oxidation. Yeah. But then also I find that I have such big dinners <laughs> that I rarely, rarely need, or I'm, I rarely have an appetite in the morning. Huh. Uh, the only exception is when we have hard pieces and then or I'll like have- like competition, like special days. Yeah. Okay. And then I'll try to have certainly a lot of coffee <laughs> yeah. and uh, maybe a shot of ketone, ketone ester. Yeah. yeah. But then, yeah. So then we'll get off the water by 8.15, 8.20 and everyone will just- disappear off to their it's jobs. Like an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very efficient. Like pretty much from the time you show off the dock till you get back, the practice never stops. Mm. It's just continuous, whether that's hard pieces or whether that's just a longer, lower intensity row. And then we all meet back at the boathouse around call it 515, 5.30, uh, either do like a brief weight session or some stretching, just another warm up. And then we're back out rowing at around 5.45 and probably back on the dock again around okay. 7 30 and then you rush back home make yourself some dinner and uh <laughs> you know maybe watch some television yeah. and back to bed so it's a pretty jam-packed day but yeah. i think we're making the most of each day so yeah. that, that's a good feeling I mean, it's actually pretty efficient if you think about it yeah. i mean you're doing four hours approximately a day times seven 20, yeah. under 30 hours a week yeah which for like an olympic you know professional athlete is 
I mean, it's a lot. You guys are basically doing two full-time jobs. I yeah. mean, you guys are literally. Yeah. You know, it's something I think all of us are kind of used to because we came up and most of us did this in high school where yeah. you had to balance a sport on top of your academics. And then certainly all of us have done it in college where it's the same thing. So in a way, you just replace schoolwork with job. work work. Yeah. yeah. And it's nice that instead of tests or quizzes, you just get it paid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's nice yeah. to look forward so is, to. Is that, is that typical against international squads? I would say... I mean, like... It's it, like, pretty unique. I, yeah, because I imagine that, like, other countries, it's like, literally, they're probably training, like, I don't know, like, 50 hours a week. Yeah, I think other countries, not to say we aren't professional, but they tend to take more of what you would think of a, a professional baseball or football player here, where that's all they do. Yeah. But I think part of the reason is that you have a lot of rowers in the U.S. that have gone to pretty good schools. Yeah. And Coach says this, and I think he's right on with it. The biggest thing that works against U.S. rowers is their opportunity cost. So instead of rowing, you're gonna, you're passing up a career. Yeah. And you get, I think, pretty thoughtful, good guys who end up continuing on and so, you know, when you're 22, 23, 24, you're willing to make that sacrifice. Right. But when you get a little older, you're starting to think, well, you know, I'd like to settle down. I'd like to, to family. Exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. I'd like to, you know, start making my way. So this is kind of allowing guys to do both, have a job, have a meaningful job yeah. and also train at a high level and compete at a high level. I mean, it's pretty impressive compared yeah. to international squads where they're just full-time. Yeah physical specimens, basically. Yeah. Do you guys feel like a disadvantage or do you feel like because your time is so focused, you actually have a creative outlet for your intellectual pursuits? You, you find that as a strength? I guess at first, it's easy to think, you know, how are we going to be able to do this? Yeah. But as the years gone on, I think I've probably been performing as well as I've ever been able to. And I think part of the reason is that maybe on the surface, it doesn't look like physiologically or physically the best thing to do. But for me, it allows me to mentally and emotionally unplug from potentially stressful or anxiety-ridden practice when you're going through selection and you unplug and you have to throw yourself into work. Yeah. So I think it's really helped me a lot. And yeah. I think it takes a pretty progressive coach and a pretty open-minded coach to allow guys to do that. Yeah. But I mean, I'm mean, i sure like he gets judged <laughs> on like how well the U.S. team does, exactly. right? And like yeah. if he's like, okay... And I'm going to still let my guys yeah. um, go and have a full-time job. Yeah, I guess we'll know more in four weeks. <laughs> yeah. But I'm optimistic, and I think the objective results along the way have been promising. So hopefully we can... Yeah, uh, what are the expectations? I know that, I mean, U.S. is obviously a powerhouse of an yeah. Olympic sport squad. How does U.S. typically rank in terms of Olympics and World Championships? Yeah. The women are, have been dominant. And the women's eight, which is kind of, the, I'd say, the Blue Ribbon event, it's like okay. the heavyweight of boxing. Yeah. The women have won 2008, 2012, 2016. They got silver in 2004. So they okay. have a very strong legacy and tradition there. The men have been a bit more up and down there. So hoping to get it back, yeah. reestablish it. But uh, I think you do all this training and you're certainly not doing it to go over there and finish second or yeah. third or miss the medals. So, right. And that's okay. You know, I think you take confidence from the training. It's good to have a uh, good goal, but a realistic goal. So. Yeah. Maybe this might be a stupid question, no, but no. you read and hear how different athletes respond towards placements. And it sounds like if you are fourth, you feel like really, really bad because you missed placing on the medal. If you're third, 
you're really happy because you're on the stand. Second, you feel really, really bad because you didn't get gold. Yeah. Is that true in terms of how you think about it? I can speak. I, I know in, in Rio. Yeah, we yeah. finished fourth in Rio. Yeah. So I can speak from personal experience. Yeah. I think there's two things at play. One is like the small picture, just how the regatta played out. Right. And then there's like, you get to kind of contextualize that within the big picture. So I think within the big picture, I'm not okay with it, but I understand like there were certain things that went well and didn't go so well. Within the regatta, I think just a younger crew, you know, at the end of the day, you got to go out there and on the finals day, you got to have your best race. And yeah. we didn't do that. That was very frustrating. Right. So you felt like you left something on the table. You yeah. Just you don't want to get off the water and feel that that wasn't our best race. You know, right. I think it's a easier pill to swallow if you go out there and you're like, well, we had the 10 out of 10, perfect piece, and we still... And three squads just like yeah, st- had yeah. the perfect race and still beat us. Yeah. But, you know, it's good. And it, I think it forces everyone to take a step back and like kind of look in the mirror and say, what more could you have done as an individual or as a teammate? And it just shows you that the margin for error on that level is so small. Yeah. And that, you know, if you want to go back, you want to like put your cards back on the table right. and, or your chips back in the middle of the pot that you, you know, got to be ready for that. But this time, you know, you're going back right. uh, for a much different. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you're on the US eight. And the, I was, yeah. So did you do the four? There's a two and four and eight. Or yeah, for the so Olympics. in rowing there is sweeping. Yeah. yeah. So think one person, one oar. Right. And then there's sculling. So one person, two oars. Right, okay. So I am on the sweep team. So I went to the world championships twice in 2013 in Chungju, uh, South Korea. Okay. And then in 2015 in France in a town called Abelette, which is just like a stunning place to row. Yeah. And I was in the men's pair. So my pair partner and I each had one oar. And we did all right there. And then in the Olympic year in 2016, I made it into the eight for Rio, where we okay. finished fourth. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. This might be a good time to just like go down and go back in a little bit in history. Yeah. Obviously, a very credential international career. How'd you get into rowing? I mean, did you have parents that liked rowing? No. Uh, I mean, like, you know, yeah. obviously our, our mutual friend and our uh, HVMN colleague, Brianna, I think she got into it because her dad was a rower. Mm. Like they were doing like a cross Atlantic little journey and she yeah. was inspired to learn there. I'm curious how you got into rowing. It's kind of a funny story, I guess. So I grew up, I guess, playing baseball. That's what I was really adamant about. Classic American. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I was really passionate about it. I loved it. And I was respectable for a while. <laughs> and then I went to high school. It was all guys school, I think very focused on athletics. You know, I was like competitive there, but kind of as I got older, my baseball started slipping a bit. I used to be a pretty good hitter. And, you know, all of a sudden, like, I'm not such a good hitter anymore. And I guess like one thing led to another. Well, it's um, like you just couldn't see the ball come in? Or yeah, just, just like, like I couldn't make contact. And, yeah. and that's a big part of, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, as they say, as a door closes, a window opens. The other part of this school I went to, like you had to play a different sport every season. So I wasn't able to just play baseball. I played football in the fall. I wrestled in the winter and I played baseball in the spring. So Damn. So like it was like a three varsity kid? Eventually I got there. It took a while. But what happened is, so I picked up wrestling when I got there and the wrestling coach, him and the rowing coach were friends. And this was my sophomore year. So I was 15, 16. He was like, I think I got this guy who's a wrestler who I think you should look at for the rowing team. So he comes over and we're talking about it. He's trying to convince me to row. 
I'm like, I don't know. I've always played baseball. I had my deposit down with the school to go on like the training camp yeah. for the baseball team down to Florida. And yeah. about, I think a, a day or two before we're set to leave, I was just like, okay, let's give rowing a shot. It was like, baseball wasn't quite working out. This coach really wanted me to try his sport. He's like, look, no strings attached. Worst case, you try it for two weeks and you decide you want to go back to baseball. That's fine with me. What do you think like was the eye for talent? I mean, clearly you're a super talented rower, but like at, when you're 16, <laughs> yeah, I know we talked about this before, but your physique is not a classical rower, right? No, like it no, wasn't not, like not by any you're means. like a 6'8", like <laughs> yeah, super lanky, lanky dude. Yeah. I think what they saw is that I was tough and I was willing to work hard. Okay. I think there are some intangible things you can't teach people. And I yeah. think I was very lucky to have my wrestling coach kind of draw those things out of me. And, you know, I'll be totally honest. Before I started wrestling, I think I was pretty soft. I don't think I knew what it meant to like really push yourself. Right. And very luckily for me, that translated past just the athletic field and into the classroom or into work. Like yeah. what does it really mean to push yourself to the limit and really pursue something and throw yourself at it? So I had a kind of coming out, if you will, when I was 16 in that wrestling season. And I think it kind of launched me into rowing and it kind of, I think, launched me into a lot of good things. <laughs> Uh, so you had the two-week trial and like you, I guess, loved it or like enjoyed it or you hated it. And, yeah, or, I guess what? I was like, this is cool. And there was just like a really good energy on that team. And I didn't know what I was doing, but everyone was so positive. I think the group of guys that were on that team, it was just a lot of fun. And it was guys I had played football with. That was the thing that that rowing coach in high school looked for. He didn't look for like traditionally good rowers. He looked for kids who are like athletic and like were willing to work hard and push themselves. So you had kids that played hockey or kids that played football or kids that like did all these other sports come together. Where'd you go to high school? It's called Belmont Hill. It's okay. about 15 or 20 minutes outside of Boston. Okay. All guys school. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Makes um, sense. Because I don't think there's a lot of rowing in California. There's some, there's like some. actually, believe it or not, Marin and Newport in SoCal is pretty okay. big. But Marin and the Oakland Strokes are okay. the two really big ones in the Bay okay. Area. So yeah, we just had like a great experience and I kind of like stuck with it. And then I realized that I was actually pretty good at it. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think it's like anything, you taste some success and you just want more. And I guess the rest is kind of history. <laughs> yeah. I mean, were you guys like state champs or? Yeah. So we uh, won like the national championships my junior year. They're um, really damn good. <laughs> well, I mean, there's I mean, a lot. Like, there's a lot of guys on the boat. So, <laughs> so you guys yeah. had a good rowing program. Oh yeah, we like the the coach is incredible. I think since two thousand national high school champs is like, yeah. I mean, no joke. Yeah, you guys were good. Yeah, so I was very lucky to have him as a coach. But like I said, a lot of really good teammates and other rowers on that team. So he's probably coached. I would guess between since two thousand six and now he's probably coached around 10 boats that have either like won or got second at the national championships. So I'm long gone, but he's still producing results. So I think it's more of a testament to him. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like he's just got a program down. And I think talking about physique, there's actually an audience question here. Yeah. Lewis asks, what is the ideal physique? And I think we just touched upon it, right? Yeah. Like the classic rower type is like a very tall, lanky yeah. individual. I would guess probably six, six foot four, six foot six right. in that range probably 210 215 pounds you know when you think like a prototypical if you were just like look at people walking down the street and you see someone like that you'd be like oh i'd check him out as a rower right and the idea is like a torque from the long limbs yeah exactly it's just like uh it's all it's a sport of leverage yeah so you get a little bit longer stroke a little bit longer arc right and you can just apply a little bit more force 
so your physique, you're not quite six four, right? Yeah. I mean, no, I'm, on a good day, we'll say six one. Okay. <laughs> on a good day. <laughs> okay. So you're overcoming like the not ideal physique. I mean, like, what is your edge? I mean, clearly you're performing at world class, top of the world Olympic level. Is it your training or discipline, your stamina? Like, you have more power uh, than the typical average. What makes you? overcome some of the disadvantage of not having the ideal physique? I think a lot of coaches that were also willing to look past it because yeah. there are coaches that are like, oh, you don't fit the mold. Right. You know, we're not even going to give you an opportunity. Right. So, you know, high school, college, Oxford, now the national team, coaches right. that are just, you know, like, okay, if this guy can go out there and row and perform. Also, I think I remember spending a lot of summers, a lot of time training, doing extra work before I even understood how the physiology, how it all worked. You know, my freshman year after college, I just spent so much time in the boathouse every day. And you just outworked everyone. Yeah. For a long time, I think that was like the equalizer for me. Yeah. And not to say that I don't now, but I think as I've gotten older, I've tried to be a little bit smarter with yeah. how I've worked. So I think you can still go back and rely on that and outworking everyone. And that's something that I still try to do, but it's also now like focusing that in, like, how can I work hard and be smart about right. it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's been, I would say, a more recent development in sports science where before like 1980s, there wasn't even a notion of professional sports, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at like Roger Bannister, for example, he was like a Oxford medical student that right. like happened to like be a runner and he yeah. broke the four minute mile. And then really in the last like 20, 30 years, you had like the cash machine of like the Olympics. I mean, the athletes don't get paid for Olympics, yeah. <laughs> but like professional like NBA, NFL, but the Olympics is a massive business yeah. for like the sponsors and the host countries and whatnot. Yeah. And then you really have like this huge rise of the professional athlete class. Mm. I think there's been a lot more science on how to best train athletes. And I think that has shifted from gentlemen athletes, right? From like 1980s previously so then like people just like working out all the time. Yeah. And oftentimes that's gets into overtraining or injury. Yeah. And I think I would say in the last five, 10 years, there's been an emphasis on recovery, 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 like set up your training blocks where you have intense periods and really relaxed periods. Absolutely. What does that look like for you? Or is that part of the, the US program? Or is that something that you think about like very yeah. cognizantly to make sure that you're fully recovered, you don't get injured? Yeah. I mean, my sense talking to professional athletes is that getting injured is like the worst. Yeah. Like you just totally stop progress, regress, and it takes so much effort to get back to healthy. It does, yeah. So I was lucky not to run into any of that till I actually got over to Oxford. I went over there to do my master's degree. And as I was mentioning a bit earlier, the coach there was just a big believer in volume. So lower right. intensity, high volume. So you did your undergrad at Harvard, right? Yeah. Okay, so I guess that would be interesting Sorry, to kind of- yeah. So graduating- Yeah, it'd be interesting to kind of compare the yeah, programs yeah. and compare the evolution. Yeah, so yeah. Harvard, I get to row for a coach, Harry Parker, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, was there for 51 years. And again, gave me an opportunity to prove myself even as like a smaller guy yeah. in the program. Imagine um, you were like a recruited athlete, right? If you were like a national champ. Yeah, okay. but uh, believe it or not, even at like 17 or 18, you, you have guys like going on and who are, albeit at the junior level, but- they're world champs or competing at the world's okay. level. So I wasn't even that good. And to be totally honest, I almost missed the freshman boat. Okay. Rowing was one of the last sports, maybe even the last sport to have a freshman team. Huh. And they just did away with that a few years ago. So of the 16 or 17 guys in our freshman class, I was probably in an eight-man boat. I was like the eighth guy in. Wow. I was, yeah. 
But like I said, that following summer, it just really gave me some incentive to work hard because yeah. I was like, well, look, you almost missed out on the freshman boat. Imagine how much harder it's going to be when you get into the varsity team. Now. Right. Harvard must be like a top rowing program, I, I assume, for, for D1 colleges. Yeah. So two really good schools on the West Coast at the University of Washington yeah. and Cal Berkeley. Okay. And on the East Coast, it's Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown are generally, those are more or less your, your top six. Okay. Yale's been pretty dominant recently, which hopefully will change. <laughs> it's okay. The old, the old safety school. <laughs> <laughs> but Washington and Cal are very strong. Okay. And Cal, or excuse me, Washington won like five national championships in a row not too long ago. So they were kind of the preeminent rowing school at the okay. moment, I would say. So yeah, I was there under Harry and, and he really left the ball in the guy's court to do as much or as little training as they wanted. So we only had really six organized practices a week at Harvard. And then the rest was up to you. So I think the guys who were competing for the varsity boat would probably do like three or four extra workouts a week. The The program really rewarded guys that were self-motivated uh, and didn't mind putting in some extra hours. Right. So from there, I graduated in 2012 and I uh, spent a year with the U.S. national team. And as I mentioned, made it into the pair. Uh, went to the world championships in Chungju, which is yeah. about two hours south of Seoul okay. in South Korea. And then I had been accepted to a research program at Oxford in psychiatry. Oxford has a very strong rowing program. Yeah, uh, and a terrific coach. So that's where I started to probably run into a bit of this like overtraining, where the duration was so much. And I came from this, I think, probably typical American mindset of more is more. Right. So, you know, it was as, as scientific and as measured a program as you could ever hope or ask for. And it was great. But we were always given these training zones. <laughs> in my first couple of years, I would rarely stay in them because I thought, you know, like, oh, I can push harder. So okay. I didn't fully appreciate because so the training know, zones were based on your heart rate, basically. Exactly. Okay. So it's had, like, okay, be in the anaerobic threshold. Don't be exactly like exactly. maxed out, like maximal threshold. Yeah. Okay. And I just thought, you know, so you're just yeah. going maximal the whole time through. I guess there the philosophy at Oxford was more of a polarized training. So when it's easy, go go easy. And when it's hard, go as hard as you can. Right. And I was probably spending a little too much time in that gray yeah. area where uh, easy days aren't easy enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then that takes away from yes. how hard you can go. Yes. So I learned the hard way in the fall, especially in my second year there, uh, with some disappointing scores. But, you know, finally, <laughs> it got it through my head that, you know, maybe I just do need to go a little easier. Right. Injuries and overtraining. I mean, they're terrible. I think probably the worst thing that people don't account for is like you just you're away from the team. And in these like team-driven sports like rowing or a lot of other professional sports, that can just take a toll on you. Like emotionally, like... Yeah, yeah, because you're on your own. You have your separate training program and you can just feel very isolated. Mm. And I think that's coupled with being injured. So you're already maybe disappointed or a little upset about that. And it's just like a double whammy. So I totally sympathize. Yeah, no, it just yeah. reminds me a lot of like also just our friends in the military. Like you have your brothers or your, yeah. your, your comrades in arms. And like, if you're injured, you're like away from them and like you lose your sense of identity a little exactly. bit, right? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And it can be pretty deflating, you know, if the team's going down to row right. at 1.30 and instead of that or whatever time they're going to row, you're kind of off on the bike on your own. And I guess like, you know, ultimately we're social creatures and right. social beings and to not have those interactions with people, whether it's on the bus or in the boat or just like, like you said, that camaraderie right. and that feeling of like belonging on a team yeah. can be tough. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that you mentioned, I think that's also been something that's come up in a previous conversation is you don't go easy enough on your easy days. Mm -hmm. So 
what is an easy day like? What is it supposed to look like for you? Sorry. And like, what did you do wrong? Like, like, like okay. it'd just be interesting how yeah, yeah. just like tease into that a little bit. Well, that is definitely something that's probably my main focus now is like you said, recovery. And right. so when we get days off, I really try to think mostly about a mental release. Like what is going to be good for me mentally? I say like, what am I, what's going to make me happy? Right. And that's been my main focus. I think probably in this last year is maybe this isn't the best thing for me recovery wise in terms of like a physiological textbook you should be like resting with your legs up and sleeping as much as possible right but i think we're working and we're working out like you said it's a lot of hours in a week and you get this time off and i think there is this like kind of mind body relationship that we don't fully understand yet but like a happy athlete is probably going to be a good athlete so saturdays i'll try to come into the city and catch up with people and you know maybe have a few beers yeah where in the past i'd be pretty reluctant and resistant to that now I'm, i'm much more focused on it. And then we'll have Sunday morning off and won't have training again until Sunday afternoon. So I'll try to like go on a bike ride or go on a hike or go to the beach. Something that I would enjoy and I guess do even if I wasn't rowing. Just to, I guess, kind of uh, enjoy that part and have that part of my life. Interesting. Yeah. So we had a conversation with Jeff Berkovici, who's an author. He wrote about extended longevity of athletes. And Mm -hmm. one of the patterns he saw was that the best athletes were like the happy athletes, the yeah. people that really love the sport. So curious to get into your head a little bit. Yeah. You've rode for 10 plus years yeah. by this point, right? 12 years, right? Yeah. What's the attitude when you go on? The, I mean, is it something that like is a job? Is it like fun? I mean, is it a craft that like you want to keep perfecting? What's your mindset and thoughts towards the sport and towards yeah. the practice? I think with rowing, with anything you take very seriously, I think there can be times where it's very tough and very challenging and it does feel like a slog. Yeah. But there are going to be days where the boat's rowing really well or you perform at an incredible level. And those are the days that I think make it worth it. And one of my teammates who's retired said this to me, and I think it's the truest thing I've heard about rowing. And I would imagine most athletes feel this way. The lows can be pretty low, but the highs are as high as you'll probably ever experience. I think that's why you keep going back, you know, like winning a big race or having like an incredible PR. Yeah. Those feelings of just like, I've put so much time and effort into this and it's paid off. That feeling of it all being worth it is unlike anything else. Yeah. I guess my mindset with rowing, <laughs> I don't know if I'd say it changes frequently. I don't view it as a job. I'm not exactly sure why I don't view it as a job, but <laughs> I guess like, you know, there are these added elements of being down there with guys that your friends with and great friends with and you get to spend time with. And as I said, it can be really tough in trying at times. But uh, hopefully at least a couple times a week you think, yeah, it's all worth it. You know, yeah. all this time, all this effort, you know, it's it's certainly worth it. Yeah. So obviously given our audience and our community here, people are really keen on nutrition. So we talked yeah. a little bit about how you go into usual work morning workouts mm-hmm. fasted. What does the rest of your meals look like? What is the timing of those meals? Yeah. Is it super thoughtful? Are you just, you know, a lot of professional athletes that sometimes are just like, we just eat candy because we just like aren't disciplined. (laughs) There's like, you know, the samurais who have a very, very rigorous protocol towards exactly what they put into their body. Yeah. Where do you sit? What does your typical program look like? I'd say this is something I was probably at one point much more of a samurai in terms of what I was eating. And now, again, I'm more of a believer. Sometimes you just got to do what makes you happy. Yeah. Not to say my eating is bad, but, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, you know what? I want to go get ice cream. 
I'm going to have ice cream. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I'd feel so guilty if I had ice cream. Yeah. I would just feel like, you know, I wasn't doing everything in my power to do what was best for my training away from rowing. Right. So I'll get back. I'll generally eat some like full fat Greek yogurt with a lot of hemp seeds and nuts. That's pretty high fat. Yeah, yeah. I'd say I'd try to trend towards like a ketogenic diet. Interesting. Um, most of the time. I'm not like perfect by any stretch, but yeah. I'm definitely like aware of sugars and carbohydrates. I do eat them, but I, I just- Especially as an athlete. I mean, you need carbs, Yeah, right? Yeah, but I do try to stay away from them in mass. Okay. You know, I eat pizza, I eat pasta, but- But yeah. sparing. It's like, it's a choice, not like your yeah. mainstay. Yeah. And, you know, but at night for dinner, I'll generally have steak and vegetables and then Maybe if my roommates make rice, I'll have like a scoop of it, but yeah. more because I need it. Yeah. Or I know I need it. Not because, you know, I'd say when rowing's done, I'll probably. So you go late breakfast, post-workout. Yeah, right give away. A, give a, like a lunch. I do. Okay. <laughs> For me, it's pretty okay. simple. It's, and some people find it really weird. It's a toast with peanut butter right around like 12 or one o'clock. I have, you know, two slices of toast, lather it up with like the whole foods, freshly ground peanut butter. And there's something about it. I, you know, I just love it. I can eat it every day and never get sick of it. And I look forward to it. <laughs> and it fills me up. And I know that if I have to go perform in the afternoon, then I'll be ready to do that as well. That's literally <clears> what you eat every single day after. For lunch. Yeah. And then again, you know, maybe for some more nuts, big into cashews and almonds. Okay. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that sounds pretty ketogenic. Yeah. I mean, besides the toast, but like, yeah. okay, it's fine. You're probably expending <laughs> a ton of glycogen. Yeah. That full fat yogurt. I mean, it's something that like, it's kind of hard to find, no? I just grab the stuff at Trader Joe's because, okay. you know, I love the taste of it. And I know that sometimes like what they use to replace the fat in is terms like of flavor sugar. is, yeah, and it's it's not great yeah. for you. You know, I don't by any means view fat as the enemy. I know right. some people do, but no, I mean, I cook my steaks in quite a bit of butter. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, that tide is shifting. I mean, I think a lot yeah. of that science is getting sort of re-looked at, so. Yeah. I mean, like obviously, as you know, like a lot of our communities very interested in fasted yeah. workouts and then a ketogenic diet. Yeah. So it's interesting to hear that, like it's working for you and how you're performing at the you know elite level. Absolutely. No, I I'm a big believer in it. And when I, do you have like your dinner? Late these okay. days, probably around eight. Okay. That's probably not as much by design. That's kind of like post work, post yeah. workout. So, okay. you know, we're not getting off the water till seven twenty, seven thirty. Oh man. And okay. then I need yeah. to like yeah, you know, I'm lucky because I only live two minutes from the boathouse. So I just run home, you know, if I had a steak in the fridge then I, or you know, steak or fish right. uh, a lot of nights. And you just after you eat, you just go right to bed basically as Yeah, I try to have like a, a blow off period. But yeah. you know, by nine thirty you're exhausted. I'll, yeah, I'll be ready to go. <laughs> except for actually when we do like peace days so hard days and i have yeah. a lot of caffeine <laughs> probably more than <laughs> is healthy and there's a plug for you guys but an honest plug yeah. i have struggled to sleep those nights you know instead of going to bed at 9 30 or 10 it's more like 11 30 or 12 by right. the time you actually fall asleep so i was talking to brianna who's yeah. you know one of your employees and she's like well why don't you try one of our products right so she sent me some or I'm not sure who sent me some, but yeah. someone sent me some. Yeah, yeah. And I tried right? the Yawn yeah. stuff. And I was like, okay, I'm not really feeling it. I'm not really feeling it. And then all of a sudden it was just like, <laughs> all right, lights out. And it was perfect. So I'll be taking, we had pieces this morning. I have a pill I'm going to take when I get home around. Uh, yeah, glad to help. Awesome eight, to hear. Eight, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it is terrific because that's been, I'd say I am a big believer in sleep. 
But it is tough when like one or even two days of your week, you're getting reduced sleep because, you know, you're just so amped up from yeah. <laughs> all the all the I mean, so you're kind of averaging like seven-ish hours a day, which is... Yeah, maybe just over that. Because I'll probably wake up around six or maybe slightly before. So okay. I'd say probably maybe closer to eight, you know, get a sleep in on the weekends a okay. touch. That is like probably one area if I looked at it as the years go on and as we get closer to the Olympics, that's probably one area where I'll continue to say, look, I can be quite a bit better here. You know, just like sleep sleeping. Discipline. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe pushing bedtime forward half an hour. Yeah. I mean, just hard if like your practices end at 730. Yeah. It's incredibly hard. My yeah. roommates are very good at it. So yeah. there's no excuse for me not to also be like, okay, it's time to go to bed. I mean, if you're preparing for Olympics, does it make sense? Like shift up your afternoon session? I mean, they're going to Tokyo. Here's our last training block. Let's like have a three o'clock afternoon workout as opposed to like a six o'clock, you know, after, you know, workout. Yeah. Well, I think- So you can um, actually go to bed at like nine. Yeah. And like eat like dinner at six, yeah. you know? Well, I think it's currently really good because you're allowing guys to keep training and- work their full-time jobs, right. but I'm sure I'd be totally supportive of it. You know, a couple months out from the Olympics, it's probably time to put everything else in your life on hold, yeah. at least for a couple months Yeah, and just really focus in. Yeah. So, I mean, we'd be remiss to not talk about it, but Olympic Village, Rio. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ask away. Yeah. I mean, you know, how was that experience? Um, how was hanging out with the celebrity athletes or, or at least seeing them, I imagine? Yeah. Obviously, it's just like a special moment that not a lot of people get the opportunity to be in such a global event. Yeah. Was it like parading with the athletes and all of that? Like, what? So the village was great. The best way to describe it is just this kind of big apartment complex, maybe call it 20, 20 story buildings. Okay. And the countries with big teams. Okay. So the United States, Canada, Australia, Great Britain, they'll each get their own building. Okay. And then there are smaller countries will have. And were know, these buildings constructed just for yeah, you guys? Yeah, with okay. the idea that after the games, they turn into just like an apartment complex. Okay. So I was in the Team USA building with, so teams, I guess, before you go down there, you can opt to either stay in the village or stay closer to your venue. Right. And we opted to stay in the village. And a lot of teams, as far as I could tell, also decided to stay there. With the notable exceptions, the basketball team. Because they're all like... Hundred millionaire. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> cool story about that. So the opening ceremonies, I think, were on a Friday. Our first race was a Monday. So yeah. we opted to just dress up in the garb, take some pictures at the village and not go just because it's a huge song and dance. Right. It's get, long. I mean, it's just, I'm sitting at home. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not, I can't, I'm just boring. It's boring. Yeah. yeah. And we all decided, you know, it would be a cool thing to do. But at the end of the day, like, we're not here to march in the opening ceremonies. Right. We're here to compete. Yeah. So we dressed up and we're getting ready to go down and just take pictures in the village. And we're pressing the, the elevator button and, <laughs> you know, the door opens and guess who's in there? The Team USA basketball team. Okay. So we're just like standing there. They're standing there. They're kind of like, oh boy, like we just want to get down to the buses. Yeah. But before the door shuts all the way, our coxswain, who's like the little guy who steers yeah. the boat, kind of like the jockey. Yeah. He's just like, wait a minute, we got to get a picture. So he like <laughs> runs and puts his hand back in the door. And it opens again. And everyone else is just sitting there starstruck. They're like, right. whoa, look at these guys like Kyrie Irving, Carmelo, uh, Boogie Cousins, uh, DeMar DeRozan. And it's all these, you know, guys you see on TNT yeah. and just all the time. And 
the door shutting again. He's like, guys, I need a picture. So, he, and you know, I'm like, come on, man. It's so hot. We can get a picture <laughs> at the opening ceremony. He's like, no, we're not going. So he's there and I can send you guys a picture if yeah. you want it. That'd be funny to just like put it on the, the yeah, show notes. Yeah. I can, and you can see that Boogie Cousins is not thrilled. He's so <laughs> upset, but Carmelo, yeah, has a huge smile on his face. Yeah. So what we hadn't realized was that for security reasons, I guess, no matter who you are, even if you're the Team USA yeah. basketball star, you need to go to the village and get the buses from the village to the opening ceremony. Right. So they had been allocated rooms in the village just to get changed for this event. Yeah. And they were going down to get on the buses. Right. And we, as luck would have it, <laughs> were pushing the elevator button as they were on their way down. Yeah. You know, that was great. And then you see other athletes, you know, Michael Phelps. Yeah. Was he seen the village? He was, yeah. 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 And not that we had any conversations, but, you know, he just seemed like very focused in on what he was about to do. Were people fangirling each other or just everyone's professional? Everyone's like no, clearly the top of their field? It really depends. Okay. You know, Usain Bolt is there. Everyone's going up for his autographs. So like Usain Bolt, like mega celebrity he, of the of the. I'm not athletes. sure, but he might have even had like a bodyguard or someone with him in the village. Whoa. I think he may have. Yeah. And then you see, I think Djokovic was in the village. I mean, at some stage... I guess we kind of had this attitude as a group of guys. It was like, look, let's not, we can save, we're, we're very lucky. The Olympics are two weeks. Yeah. Our last race is the end of week one. So you still have all of week two to be. To enjoy. Exactly. And, and to, be a tourist. Exactly. Yeah. And like go up to these athletes. Um, and you do. There are venues around the entire Olympics. that right. It's like if you're part of Team USA, no matter who you are, if you're me or if you're Ricky Fowler, the golfer, Okay, he probably gets treated a little bit better. <laughs> but like, you're still welcome to go in there. Yeah. And one of them is the Team USA house, which is just this house. It was right on Impanima Beach, literally across the street from the ocean. Okay. And if you're an athlete or a family member of an athlete, you get to go in. It's like food and beverage pretty much from 11 a.m. until midnight every day. It's like a nice luxury beach house. Yeah, to exactly. Just like kick it. Music. You can just go there and hang out okay. at any point. So that was cool. I will say this. I know I get to ask this question probably more than anything. You know, I think people have this idea about the village just being like pretty debaucherous, but it's not. It, or at least in my experience, yeah. it wasn't at all. And I didn't even realize this, but there's a no drinking policy in the village because yeah. athletes are competing up until the last day of the games. Right. So the last event at the Olympics is always the marathon. So I'd been done for... I don't know, seven days or yeah. I forget exactly like how the closing ceremonies timed up, but the marathon had gone off that afternoon or that morning. So we're at the closing ceremonies and the last medals that get presented are the, the Olympic marathon medals, right. which is pretty cool. Yeah. You know, you're at the Olympic village, closing ceremonies, everyone's there. Yeah. So in, in my experience, it was nowhere near as wild as it. Right. Like they always write up like a million condoms yeah. were shipped to the village. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. The only people we saw going for the condom dispensers were coaches. <laughs> <laughs> really? Because they put the condom dispensers in the dining hall, which is enormous. It's probably two or three football fields long. Okay. You know, because it has to house, I don't know, <laughs> 10,000 or so. Oh, how are the yeah. coaches getting busy? They're just like... But the thing is, the condom dispensers make this like incredible noise. You know, those like quarter yeah, yeah, yeah. machines so it's like you put into hell. And, so and just, just like announce the world yeah exactly you spin yeah. it like three or four times yeah. and then something falls out so <laughs> but the acoustics of that were so that it just projected it right so you'd hear that and you just look over your shoulder and be like who's, who's getting who's, yeah. yeah like without a doubt 
I'd say nine times out of 10, it was like coaches. You're <laughs> 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 just like, oh, I'm not sure that's who the, those were for, but. Uh, <laughs> I guess it makes sense yeah. for coaches because like their job is kind of done. It's like yeah. keep their guys or and keep their girls lined up. And yeah. once the event's done, it's like, okay. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I think this kind of relates to the question here. Aaron asks, which athletes do you look up to and why? I mean, it sounds like there were some, you know, tennis, basketball folks that you looked up just because they're kind of celebrities. But yeah. just in your own career, I mean, there's clearly a couple coaches that were seminal to your development. Yeah. Are there like rowing athletes that you look up to? Yeah. So in terms of like rowing athletes, there's one guy and he was a guy I looked up to when I was at Harvard. His name's Malcolm Howard. Mm-hmm. He was a Harvard athlete. He graduated in 05. And then Won the Olympics in 2008, silver in, in 2012. And I got to row with him at Oxford my first year there. Mm. He was the guy I looked up to the most in rowing. And he's been a mentor ever since. You know, we talk weekly. And he's just been such a positive influence on my life. And he's been there before. He's done it all. So anytime I'm struggling or I need to bounce an idea, he's the person I always reach out to. And then I'd say in terms of more traditional athletes, probably Larry Bird. believe it or not in that you know he was an exceptional basketball player but not because of any innate like physical talent but because he worked hard and he was tough i mean i feel like we're kind of young to like see him in his heyday right yeah well i guess you grew up in boston and for a long like he was a boston legend. he's a boston legend yeah and you know my dad watched him play so my dad would tell me about how he's so clutch it's like anytime the celtics needed it they'd give larry bird the ball and he hit it and he you know he played through back injuries he he was just a tough, tough guy. And, you know, there's stories about him. So the way it works, the Garden in Boston, you have the Bruins and you have the Celtics there. Mm-hmm. So they have the ice. Then when there's a Celtics game, they put the parquet down over the ice. But the way they would do it is that there would sometimes be dead spots on the floor. So he would go around the entire garden with like a squash ball or a tennis ball and find out where the dead spots would be. So if he's playing defense, he could kind of position a guy into it for the steal. Uh, or he would know when he had the ball, where to go, where not so to go. So that's really home court advantage. Yeah. Because he knew that there's this like different temperature spots. Yeah. Interesting. But just like the effort that that would take to do, you know, on a regular basis and how hard he worked just to get to where you have three-time NBA champ, I think a one or two-time league MVP. Right. But, you know, not like a innately... You look at him and you're probably not like, oh, this guy's a great basketball player. gangly looking dude. Exactly. uh, Uh, So just as like a, as someone who grew up in Boston, he's a guy I'd say I look up to the most. Yeah, no, that's cool. Yeah. One thing that you touched upon that I think is also interesting is at Oxford, very, very quantified in terms of how you measure performance. Obviously, a lot of folks listening probably interested in quantified self, different biomarkers Mm -hmm. that you track. Are you super nerdy with like everything you track? Are you more intuitive? I mean, another way to ask the question is that there are some athletes that I talk to that are like animals in the sense that no measurement. I just want to feel the course, feel feel my body, understand my body intuitively. Mm-hmm. And other athletes are like, you know, I'll measure everything. I'm like a scientist on how I treat my body. Yeah. Obviously, everyone is kind of a mix of both. Yeah. Curious to get your thoughts and what biomarkers, if you track any mm-hmm. biomarkers, are you most interested in? And then two, how do you think about intuition versus science. So I guess this probably goes kind of hand in hand with how I've treated my diet. So at Oxford, like very regimented, very scientific, you know, you wear a heart rate monitor every practice, it gets Mm -hmm. recorded, you upload it so the coaches and physiologists can look at it. You know, you get your load score at the end of each week through training peaks. And then you sit down and you'd have like probably 
every six or eight weeks, you have some form of testing, step testing, and then like max testing as well, just to see how you've progressed and see if... What's step testing? What's max testing? Yeah. So for us, I think it was six four-minute steps. So each one gets progressively harder. Basically checking your lactate, lactic acid production, and checking your heart rate to make sure those are kind of lining up you know, as you shift through these different zones. So at the end of four minutes, they just prick your ear, collect your lactate. Yeah, they collect blood and then they have, I think, a centrifuge and like they spin it up. And I don't understand all the science behind it, but I trust that they did. (laughs) And yeah, they could say basically, look, this is where we see your heart rate and we see that, you know, you're producing this much lactic acid, this many millimole at this heart rate. And we think these two things go together. So yeah, we think this is the right training zone for you. Right. So basically like, okay, so that makes sense. So you basically just, so in understanding and interpreting here, essentially plot out your heart rate to lactic acid production. Exactly. And find the right exact zones of where you should be and when you're training. Exactly. Okay. And And then then, I guess it evolves over a training block. Yeah. So it's like, okay, now like you're improving your lactic acid production is mm -hmm. more efficient or or lower for for set heart rate. Exactly. Let's evolve your training protocol. Yeah. Okay. And that's cool to see. You know, maybe you're at 250 watts and that requires you at the end of an hour session, that's like two millimoles or whatever. Right. Six or eight weeks later, maybe it's 1.7 millimoles of lactic acid. And then before you know it, it's like 1.3, 1.1, 0.9. So you, you see objectively, it's not like, oh no, I wonder if I'm in better shape. It's like, no, no, you are in better shape. Yeah, you're producing 50% less lactate. Yeah. yeah. And then we do max testing, which for us was always a, a 5K. 5K. On the uh, row machine. Yeah. So you set the monitor for 5,000 meters as quick as you can go. Yeah. It, it was funny. We did comparatively such little maximum effort stuff yeah. at Oxford that you always felt incredibly nervous. You know, if it, it felt like this is huge, you know, this is <laughs> Eight weeks of my season kind of condensed down to <laughs> the this one, one one number. Yeah, one number. Yeah. But now I'd say it's almost the opposite. Right now I do just a lot of testing, a lot of so max. Team. Yeah, a lot okay. of max effort stuff. So like you once just, a day, once a week. I'd say like max, max twice a week before the team moved out here in February. A lot of guys were still located on the East Coast, right. so unfortunately the water freezes and you're on the erg. <laughs> so on yeah. the rowing machine. So yeah, it was like twice a week on the rowing machine, just as hard as you can go. Yeah, so 5K, mm-hmm. how long does it typically take like um, a lead athlete? So like the world record was set by a guy who was at Oxford with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a big boost of confidence for the coaching. It's like, right. oh yeah, this guy's been here for four years. He just set the world record. I yeah. think he went 1454 or something like yeah. that, which is a 129.4 split which is like incredible because a lot of people can't even hold that for 2,000 meters. And he held it for 5,000. Yeah. So we, we always joke. It's uh, brutal. I mean, I, yeah. I I think I mentioned to you, I've been playing around with the ergometer a little bit. Yeah. And like, yeah, 500 meters at that is like... Yeah. Ex- oh, that's like, no I wanna, joke. <laughs> I want to throw up. Like, you're just like, yeah. oh my God, like I'm, I want to throw up. And I'm, I don't even know if that's right. Like, I think I could do like... I don't even think I can pull on sub 130. I could probably pull like high 130s for like 500 meters or something. Yeah, it was exceptional. And he yeah. he's more or less my size. So to do it at, at my size and weight is just like even more impressive. Okay. So how does it feel when you're doing a 5K maximum? I mean, 15 minutes as hard as you can. Yeah. Like, are people like puking afterwards? I mean, this is it's Some hard. guys, yeah. Some guys yeah. like will get a bit more dramatic and fall off. And yeah. But I mean, it really depends on your pacing. If you're in shape and you've paced it well, then, you know, it hurts a lot. Yeah. 
You're a professional. You know, how to, you know how to do it. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, if you've mispaced it or maybe you're a little sick or maybe, yeah. you know, something's happened and that's something that can get really painful because yeah. you mentally have this idea of like where you should be. It's like your perception of reality and reality can sometimes be pretty far apart. Right. Just like that disappointment in yeah. between can be pretty painful, both like physically and then right. the realization. So you get the live data. Oh, yeah. You have, you. you have so a screen right you, there. So you're just like, I want to pull 129. And you're like, you go off strong. And then you're yeah. like, oh, my, like, I can't yeah. hold this. I think if it's going well, it probably shouldn't hurt for the first two thirds, I yeah. would guess. I mean, everyone else is different. But I think you, if you're really feeling it before halfway, that's probably a sign. Yeah that <laughs> they might want to slow down a little yeah. bit that, that today's not going to be was the guy who broke the world record uh using ketones i no. know there was okay one of the studies in the participant <laughs> yeah i don't exactly know what distance they did but there yeah. was a world record set on the erg using the, the ketone ester i think that was, a, that was 30, a different one i think that was a 30 minute at rate 20 which is like measures it's a good test of aerobic uh capacity but okay. also like power okay because it's a set stroke rate right so it's like, okay, go as far as you can in 30 minutes at this like specific stroke rate. So, right, right. 20 strike strokes per minute. Yeah. yeah. No, this one is just like, go as fast as you can, as hard as you can, any yeah. stroke rate you want. So yeah, I, as someone who has played around with the ergometer, so what stroke rates are you guys targeting during practice yeah. and then during competition? So like as a layman, 20 is like, fairly low yeah right yeah, as like a someone that just goes to the gym like i think a normal study pace would be like around like 30 like low high 20s maybe just yeah. as someone who just like kind of pulling at like a normal consistent pace yeah well, for yeah, us we'll yeah. never really go lower than 18 but then when you're competing you'll there's like three i guess facets of a race you have the start yeah which are kind of like the hardest strokes you're probably going to take but they're also the highest strokes you're going to take. So you'll be up to anywhere like 44, 46, 48. Okay. Uh, and then you'll settle down probably to the high 30s, 38, 39. Okay. And then you have the sprint. So it'll come back up. Probably not quite as high as the, you were at the... The stroke is quite high. Yeah. Is, I mean, you guys yeah. obviously are working hard. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I think like the general principle behind rowing is like it's distance per stroke. Right. So if you can get like even a millimeter more distance per stroke than it your competition. Yeah. You know, you're taking, who knows, 230 or so, you know, call it 230. So it adds up. Yeah. It really is a game of inches or yeah. sometimes even less than inches. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think I've just seen, you know, some of the highlights where it's like literally going, it's like they're just neck to neck at that very, very end. Yeah. I mean, the gold and the silver in one of the events. So is the men's single skull. So one guy, two oars. Right. Uh, the gold and the silver was separated by, it might have even been down to the thousands, which is, you know, at that stage, it's like, That's you can't so reliably brutal. say. Yeah. In swimming, for example, if that happens, they share the medal yeah. because they say we can't build these swimming pools within like right. a, a, an error range. A, exactly. Yeah. An error range where we know that you were starting and finishing at the exact same right. point. And a swimming pool is what, 50 meters? Right. I can't imagine that 2,000 meter course. Yeah, in is, like a open, yeah. like natural water. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so for it to come down to that, it's like every stroke matters. Yeah. Everyone who's rowed for long enough, you've probably been on the winning side of that and the losing side of that. Yeah. And when you're on the winning side, you just think, man, like I'm happy, you know, you're, you're thankful and you're like, I, but when you're on the losing side, you think, man, you wish you had gone just a little bit harder at some point in the race. Right. You wonder, could I have gone a little bit harder? Is there, what more could I have 
Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I'm sure like you could have on the plus side or on, on the downside, just you can have like these nightmare scenarios where like, like I took a little bit of yeah. a break and on, you know, 40% in, I, I yeah. could have pushed harder. Yeah. So like heart rate, lactate, or mm-hmm. a couple of things that you guys were smart about. Yeah. Anything else? Like I know that heart rate variability. Yep. That was is, Okay. So like, I mean, obviously that's gotten a lot of interest recently. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you still look at in terms of a sign for recovery? Do you actually use that as a way to size up or load up your training blocks? So I'd say since I've moved out here, I've really gotten away from the more objective uh, in terms of like measurements of my right. my biomarkers. But that is something that we used a lot. Uh, and there were two, a few apps. And like one of them is easy enough that you can just use the light on your camera of your phone to measure it. Um, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you just like, you just like put your finger on the exactly. camera and just... Yeah, I guess it can pick up like your heart pumping blood. So yeah. it can pick up the variability. That was something we used. And there was a kind of a warm up that our physiologist kind of devised that he devised in my last couple of months at Oxford. So I'm sure it's progressed, but... I'd say sometimes you just know. That's where I think I got too focused on the numbers. Mm -hmm. And I didn't take a step back and say, how am I actually feeling? And I think there is like a big element of subjectivity as an athlete where you need to say like, how do I feel? And there's a lot of techniques to monitor this. It can be as simple as like just writing down either in a spreadsheet or a piece of paper. You know, it's like the stoplight method. I think that's something that they use in Australia. It's like, you know, if you feel good that day, it's a green. If you feel okay, it's an orange. If you feel bad, it's a red. And if you have enough, and this is just like a subjective thing. It's like, oh, I don't feel that great today. That's a red. You have enough of those days in a row. It's like, well, maybe something's up. Maybe I need to take some time off. Maybe I need to go talk to the coach. Right. I think it's really about finding like what works well for the athlete. And for me, I'd say right now where I'm at, it's probably more the subjective method. Like how yeah. am I feeling? Do you feel like that's because you become more of a mature tune to your body like you just know your machinery so well now where it's like yeah I've, I've seen the numbers i understand my my general zones i know exactly you know how i feel when i get this threshold of, of heart rate so yeah. I, so that's the distraction for me now like i'm gonna just be like an intuitive animal right like, exactly. animal, like a cheetah is not like measuring his yeah his, like footsteps <laughs> right like you just yeah. run in 60 miles per hour yeah i think um you do it long enough and, and not to say that like, you know everything by any stretch of the imagination, but you do know yourself pretty well. Right. And I think it can be in some regards a distraction. Yeah. And it's like, for me, I go out there and now I just try to row the boat. Right. It's like silly or simple. Maybe it's an oversimplification, yeah. but it's like, oh, if I feel that the boat needs more, I'll give it more. If it feels like it doesn't need as much, then I won't give it as much. But with the expectation that like when it's time to perform right. and race and when the clock is on it, as our coach right. says, it's going to be everything yeah. I got. I mean, is it also just also based on the coaches? Because I know that we had Connor Barwin on the program, who's a yeah, NFL will. guy. It was interesting because like he went through a couple different coaches, like Chip Kelly, who I believe was like super into metrics, and he had like the current coach Peterson, who is much more intuitive, and he had an interesting perspective around what was valuable and what was not valuable in terms of like how serious one should look at metrics. So it sounds like. Oxford, very metrics driven, mm-hmm. US national team, less so. Yeah, I'd say our current coach has a great idea of like what is very important and maybe what's more peripheral. Right. And I think he's right. I think he says, you know, you have a boat, some oars, some good athletes, and a coach, and that's all you need. And I think, unfortunately, and I've been guilty of this myself, you get too caught up in like things that are related, but maybe only 
second or third order right. and they are peripheral. Right. And I think it's like having a balance. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, if the rowing isn't good and the guys aren't in shape and they're not good rowers, then all the other things in the world aren't going to matter. Right. But if you have all those things taken care of in that order, then that's when you can start saying. And I think, you know, there is at times people get like, oh, well, we need this supplement or we need this or that to, and it's like, well, maybe if you were just- A if better you, athlete. Yeah, maybe if you just I, focused a bit more yeah. on like your technical side of rowing yeah. or if you spent less time worrying about all these other things, like these more peripheral things. I mean, I think that rings true to myself as well. I think one, I would say downside, if there's a downside to like the like the biohacking quantified mm. self movement in, in the communities that you have people that are just so obsessed with like these random markers or like these supplements or these like little hacks yeah. and just like, you don't even look that healthy. Like they're yeah. trying to like so much hack their sleep or their diet and they're like not even just like doing the basics, right? Like just exercise, sleep, eat well. Yeah. But if you're just like focused on like figuring out how to like optimize your sleep or like doing like four hour, like, you know, super hack of diet, but you're not doing like basic stuff. It's like you're, you're doing it backwards. Like make sure you get the low hanging fruit first. Yeah. And then optimize and tweak. And I think that people in the biohacking community are just like, hey, these are some magic things that you should like look at. And like people just gravitate to, towards these shiny objects. And they just forget that end of the day, if you're like a runner or a rower, like the best thing to do is just row a lot. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like don't, you know, play games. No, I think that's a, a great point. Yeah. And it's like do the fundamentals, do like the foundational stuff yeah. really, really well. Yeah. And then if you get all that stuff done really well, then it's time to explore. Right. But I think often, like exactly like you said, people, they get caught off on a tangent. They're yeah. like, oh, that's like, okay, pretty good. But like, I think people often look for shortcuts. Yeah. And sometimes they think, oh, this is a shortcut for actually doing the work. Right. When in reality, it's like, no, there's nothing legally available. That's a shortcut. You yeah. Know? <laughs> and if it is a shortcut, it's there's probably a reason. You know, it's probably not a legal shortcut. Right. Yeah, no, I understand that intuition because... Oftentimes, like you get diminishing returns from like rowing. So it's like, okay, or like doing the same thing over and over again. So it's like, okay, it's getting harder and harder to improve on this one single metric. I'm going to find another orthogonal thing to like practice on or like shift my attention to. Yeah. And then you start investing more and more time in things like tertiary exactly. things and you forget to actually do your, your, your basic thing. As we kind of wrap up here, I want to get a sense of a pre race, what's going through your mind. Are there rituals that you go through? to mentally gear up for the big day? Pre-race, I wake up that morning and depending on when the race is, they're kind of like subconscious things that I feel when I wake up that morning. And I think one of them is just like this maybe quietness and this kind of like wantingness to, to not really talk, but to be very internally focused. I know some guys listen to music, but I just want to stay as relaxed as possible. I don't want to go over the peak on the arousal curve. I think that was something that early in my like athletic career, I was like, oh, I need this music. And I get really hyped up and then it'd be my time to go out and perform. And I'd be like, I'd feel flat. Because you're just too hyped up on like... Adrenaline. And yeah. you know, you're just like, it's like, no, just like stay relaxed, stay relaxed. And these days I'd say caffeine is something like coffee. I don't drink it except for when it's for a maximum performance. And I think last time I was in here, I was talking to you guys, like <laughs> I'll have like five or six cups when we do racing. 
And I know that's probably more, it's probably like two or 300 milligrams more than most people would say, oh, it's like the recommended amount for an athletic yeah, like boost. 500, 600 megs. Yeah, yeah. But I just kind of love that feeling and it, it gets the adrenaline really going. Yeah. It kind of gets that fight or flight going. And, right. You know, when you're racing or you're about to line up in a sport, there's like, it's not like you're just going to walk off the start line, All you right. know. It's like, no, it's time to go. And I've been playing around the ketone ester. Yeah, yeah, definitely like with some of our longer endurance stuff, I've been playing around with it. But hopefully this coming winter, I'll be able to use it some more when we use yeah. like, you know, get some really objective measurements, yeah. especially when we start doing longer pieces on the rowing machine. Interesting. Definitely. I used to work out with a lot of music and like, especially when I'm doing like longer runs, I, I think it's distracting. It can be, yeah. Yeah, it's like, I don't know, like I, you're getting overly hyped or you're like listening to the words or you're like singing along and it's like not the rhythm that you actually want to be going or something. Yeah. I, I think that's interesting to like, just be within yourself and like find the focus internally rather than like having some music to hype you up. Yeah. So it's like kind of, you're almost like Zen as yeah. you're going into the race. I can't think of too many sports where like when you're actually out there performing you're able to listen to, to it's, a, it's illegal for rowing right well there's just there's no music well i guess like when you're on the rowing machine you can have music yeah. it depends on the coach again yeah. if there's music playing or not right. the coach at oxford no music when you're testing right you know he's like well there's no music when you're in competition <laughs> you're in competition and i think yeah it's just like a little thing to have it's like it gives you a little mental edge and even if it's only a perceived mental edge then that can be just as worthwhile right I mean, I've seen some research where if the rhythm of the music actually matches your cadence, like it helps reinforce your cadence. I'm just like, you know, speculating here. Yeah. Like, okay, if you have like target stroke rates. Yeah. And it's like, okay, like we want to do like 44 strokes per minute in the first quarter. Like you just like time it out and yeah. you like have like your earbuds <laughs> in. And like, okay, I just match the music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just wonder if like that could be kind of like a little hack that would actually, you know, be beneficial. In rowing, what I find surprising and helpful is like having other people generating a rhythm, whether it's on the erg or in the boat. And yeah. that's something I think like as you get better in rowing, and I'm sure there are anecdotes in other sports, running, cycling, or swimming, but there are guys that you find you just match up better with yeah. and you like prefer to be with them, not just because they're good in their own right, but because there's like this synergy, yeah. like the two or three or four of you is just working together and it just gets like the best out of everyone. So yeah. there's definitely something in terms of this rhythmic boost. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's one thing that I thought was like just so natural or unnoticed in rowing where you guys shift your stroke rates kind of dynamically, right? Like, yeah. it's like, okay, you see someone like coming up to, towards you or trying to catch someone. How do you guys line up the stroke rates? Because like you watch on TV and mm -hmm. it's like everyone's like a machine, like yeah. very, very synchronous. A lot of practice. <laughs> so like, are you guys like spotting the guy in front of you? And like, like who sets it? Is the coxswain just like saying like, hey, go faster, go slower? Like, how does it all work? Generally, like the coach will say, you know, like, this is what I want. And then the stroke man to the guy who's up in the front of the boat. Yeah. And if there's a coxswain, the two of them will work together. Yeah. But there are some boats where there is no coxswain. So it's just, you know, a one man boat or two man woman right. boat or four-person boat yeah and then it's up to the guy who's stroking it to kind of set the rhythm and it's so really so the stroke guy is the guy that everyone gets to see it, yeah everyone's okay. looking at him or her and they set the rhythm for the crew and okay. the best thing you can do 
being behind them is just follow them. Even if what they're doing isn't like technically the right thing to do, what they're doing is the right thing to do because they're stroking it. Yeah. But that's something that takes a long time to figure out. And you get guys that are, for whatever reason, better in that seat. And then you get guys that are, for whatever reason, better following than they are at setting a rhythm. Right. I think it's like the big picture. It's like very simple, but it's very nuanced. Right. And there's a lot of like subtle things that go on that I think to like just the casual observer, you don't appreciate like, oh, the boat isn't actually always set. Right. You know, like if you're not rowing well together, then the boat flops around a lot. Right. And that, that is like frustrating as a rower. And then also really slows you down because it's like, you know, the, the oars are dragging along the or water. It doesn't feel stable, right? Exactly. You just yeah. can't push full power. In. It, for whatever reason, I think because you have to really develop a lot of these fine-tuned movements, it just does take a long time. Yeah. Everything at the highest level is just like so much nuance that just, yeah, like, like it's hard to explain like, okay, why are you doing this one specific thing? It's like, I don't know, like it's the 15 years of like doing this. Yeah. What do you do outside of full-time work, full-time rowing? Like what's like, I mean, it sounds like you, you know, you have your time off to like really relax. Yeah. Other, What's like your off days look like? I guess I just try to spend it with friends. Yeah in the city, I think, you know, I'm really close with my friends on the team, but sometimes the best thing for everyone is totally to, unplug. Yeah, yeah, go our separate ways. Like yeah. some guys like to do one thing. I mean, the, I'd say, you know, every other weekend we'll spend weekends together. Like we'll either go get dinner or we'll go out yeah. to a bar and have a few beers. But I'm lucky in that I have a lot of friends who live in and around here. So I get to jet off and see them. And, you know, like I said, go to the, I love the beach. Uh, I love hiking. So I'll try to do yeah, just like outdoor stuff in Bay yeah. Area is awesome. And I feel like this is this is like one of, if not the best place in the world to be outside. Yeah. Uh, and every day is more or less just like perfect. Yeah. Especially when you come from the East Coast. You know, you, <laughs> I love Boston. I love New York, but you're not frozen for a third of the year. Yeah. Or right now, you know, yeah. it's like 95 and and 100 humidity, and yeah. you, you just like don't want to be outside because of that either. Yeah. But you know, it's like 60, 70 degrees, sunny for the most part. Yeah. It's a good place to live, and yeah. there's a lot of a lot of good things about it. What's next for you? So next four weeks, getting mm-hmm. for the world championships. Yeah. Obviously, that's probably where your mind's at. Yeah. I guess it'll be interesting to kind of like, what exactly is that going to look like? Mm-hmm. And then the second part of the question, yeah, what are you looking for for the rest of 2018? I mean, I'm mean, looking forward to Tokyo. Like, what's next? What's yeah. new for you? So we're here for, I think, one more week and we leave next week and we go to Princeton, New Jersey, which is about 75 minutes outside New York. Yeah. And it's... uh where the women's national team is still based. And until last summer or like even this fall, winter, the men's national team was based there mm-hmm. as well. And I don't know, I don't know how either team ended up there, but that's where they've been for a long time. Yeah. So we'll be there. And that's, I think, to kind of get onto a body of water where our coach, who I mentioned, he coached for three or four Olympics, he has like a lot of historical data. If we do pieces on this body of water, and we go this fast, that's a really good indicator that we're able to go over. And then also it breaks up the flight to Bulgaria. Right. It's going to shift the time zones a little bit. Yeah. As opposed to just like, boom. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's eight hours from the West Coast to what, Bulgaria? mainland Europe. I yeah. think England I mean, is... Sounds about right. Eight I mean, or yeah, because yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I make this phone call often. Um, it's, it's it's a lot. So yeah, eight it'll hours, help break eight that hours. up. Yeah. So we'll break up the flight and then we'll go, we'll leave Princeton after a week and we'll get to Bulgaria a week before racing begins. Okay. So probably 12 days before the final to fully acclimate, get used to the water there. And I think the 
duration of the sessions will be greatly reduced, you know, start really like tapering up, just getting ready to go. Yeah. It's good. I think like you want to feel like you have too much energy. That yeah. means you've done it right. Right. So when you completely stop, like is it three days out, two days out? You'll keep training at yeah. least once a day. Okay. I guess you, there is always the threat of like going too easy yeah. for too long. I think that you always want to have some intensity just so yeah. your body isn't totally shocked right, by right. like, oh man, we have to really go maximal. really, yeah. really hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And obviously coaches have different philosophies right. with that. Yeah. So 16th is like the big day on the calendar. Okay. And then after that, be in Europe for a little while, see some friends in England. I'll go home back to Boston, see my mom and dad and my sister. It'd be really good to just chill out. Get a for, little bit of breather. Yeah. yeah. We're talking about recovery. You know, I think having two weeks totally off, three weeks totally off is in the short term might seem daunting to some people like, well, how could I take that much time off? Yeah. But long term, I don't think there's anything better you yeah. could do because yeah. you get it back so quickly. And it also, I think, just lets your entire body just like kind of shut down, repair itself. Right gear back up and i think for me i found mentally too it makes the long hard months much easier right when you've had this break to just kind of like yeah, how many months have you been training up towards this world championships so i took the biggest break i've ever taken in my life almost a year ago it was five weeks okay pretty much all of august and part of september or something like that okay you're basically like a full 11 months in straight yeah since then. but before that i was talking to my parents about it. i think it might have been I think the longest I'd ever taken off before that was about seven days. And just looking back on it, I don't think that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now, as you get older, yeah. you, like I say, you need to be smarter. So yeah. you just need, you need to be in tune and you, you just need to say like, what do I need? Yeah. When I feel like the time is ready to get back training, like you kind of want to be itching to come back. You don't want to be seven days off and then be like, I'm not ready to go back, but I feel like I should. You yeah. want to be like, no, look in the mirror be like, ooh. <laughs> I need to get back to working out. Yeah. <laughs> Put on a few pounds. <laughs> awesome. Well, good yeah. luck in Bulgaria. Thank you. I'm very sure it'll do well. Yeah. Uh, which event should we be watching out for you on that? Uh, the men's eight. Men's eight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the so heavyweight, the, big, big. Cajon yeah. Blue ribbon. Yeah. I think it's the last event of the regatta. If it's not the last, it's certainly one of the last events okay. of the regatta. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Good luck. Thank you very I'm much. Sure Thanks so much for having me in. We'll have to have you back on and, 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 and sure on like, and like talk about how you got the gold medal. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> no pressure. Deal. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks so much. As always, please send my producer Zill and I feedback at podcast at hvmn.com. iTunes reviews are always appreciated. And remember, you'll score a free Sprint Mini in the process. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And talk to you soon.